0: Welcome to Syntalk. The Syntalkers around the table today discuss the biography of defiance. We'll think about defiance as a long-term phenomenon in a wide range of contexts. Is defiance always against deviation from the natural order of things? How does it live and die across generations and centuries? Where does normativity come from? How do the non human, such as rivers and rhinos, defy? What makes authority illegitimate? Can appropriation also be a mode of defiance? Was Niratsi Choudhury defeatist? Can one become English? What is essential? Is defiance ever an act of persuasion? Is it always defensive? What sustains the hope underlying any defiance? And what is the likely long-term future of power, norms, and defiance? We are pleased and privileged to have three SIN talkers with us here today. Dr. Shayan chottopadhyay He teaches at IIT Kanpur and works in the area of post-colonial studies and Indian writings in English. Dr. Bharati Puri. She teaches philosophy at IIT Delhi and works on areas such as religion, Tibet, Buddhism, culture, politics and ethics and Professor Oru Hoikia he teaches modern history at IIT Guwahati his primary area of research is modern history of Assam both economic and political and its environment So, Shayan, why don't we set the ball rolling with you maybe, maybe in the literary world or anywhere else that you think is appropriate given what we're trying to figure out today. Um, But when you think of defiance, what comes to mind? And what are the ideas or concepts in your world that you think may be appropriate here?
1: I think the first thing that comes to mind when we are thinking of defiance or dissent uh, from within the field of literary studies is resisting or going against the formulaic right so when something has become rigid almost like a formula you resist it you what do defy you mean by it. formula anything any practice something that becomes too easy practice, practice, to copy too easy to copy and also rule bound so a set of expectations build around a certain kind of literary form, for instance, mm-hmm. um, and then a new movement might start. And here I am thinking, for instance, about the Romantic movement in literature, which um, uh, had figures like Wordsworth, Coleridge.
0: So, what was it? What was it defiance against?
1: So, uh, for instance, Wordsworth uh, wrote um a manifesto like a document which is Called the preface to the lyrical ballads. Lyrical ballads was a collection of uh, poems that he and his friend Coleridge put together. But that had this preface, the second edition, which um, some kind of a manifesto. Some kind of a manifesto. We don't usually think of a manifesto when we are talking about literature, right? Yeah. But uh, that was a kind of manifesto which said that the kind of poetry that was available to them then uh, had become too formulaic in the sense that uh, similar kind of expectations built around similar kind of um, phraseology, uh, similar kind of expressions, and all of those tried and tested methods after a certain point of time become dead, both to the reader and to the writer, perhaps. So they are just imitating certain tried and tested formula. Uh, Defiance, as Wordsworth would then um, understand it, would be to go against that rigid formulaic structure and bring out something new, right?
0: So then it's breakdown of structure because that isn't
1: romanticism because,
0: you know, you could break it down in so many different ways and go in so many different directions.
1: Right. That is the other part of the defiance, right? So uh, one aspect involves um, smashing up something that already exists. Which is like postmodernism or something with... Uh, yeah, I mean, any literary movement involves a new literary movement will involve these two kinds of things, right? Smashing up certain kinds of structures that had become formulaic, that had uh, become rigid and constraining, mm-hmm. and finding new expressions. So the other side is that, what do you express? Whose voice are you bringing to the forefront? Um Romantic movement again would try and bring the voices of people from the marginalized sections of the society, right? right? A, a, a solitary reaper reaping in the field, right? That became the subject of one of Wordsworth's very famous. Uh, poem yeah Um, so that is the other part right you are breaking up something to give expression to something else what that something else again changes also the subject changes subject changes yes so defiance happens because somewhere down the line someone or some group feels that their subject position does not find adequate expression within the existing formula of of uh, doing literature or doing or speaking about anything really right and that's where defines I
0: and Bharati what is it to you like as a as, as somebody who's maybe thought of it in the context of political philosophy it's probably home territory for you um what is defiance? are the different kinds of modes is it always political does it start off as being personal and becomes political um what are the theoretical ideas there that you think might be fruitful to think about
2: it's such a huge area to be looking at, even in terms, and not an area, just such a huge thought by itself. So uh, I, I tend to go back to Rousseau, who connects so beautifully with what Cheyenne has just brought up, Wordsworth and Coleridge, hmm. uh, the whole idea of romanticism and uh, that constant gnawing concern that he raises, that some way we are free, but everywhere we are That, you know, there is this notion of freedom, but what exactly does it entail? And I think this raises such a huge query right back from the Greek era. When you look at the idea of, you know, the Socratic citizenship, uh, I mean, when we really think of the blame that Socrates may have taken, and the way he comes out in his apology, and the way he is absolutely... A different voice when he's saying, you know, uh, to the people of Athens that uh, this is not something that he has done. It's He's not to be blamed for thinking. On the other hand, in his later texts, he actually comes out with an assertion that he, uh, you know, we need to also obey. And this idea of disobedience and fear, which is literally the core uh, of the context of uh, disobedience uh, and fear yeah because how i you know the whole idea of you at one level that the idea of disobedience is being you know that is it good to be obedient let's put it like that mm. what is the idea of obedience um how do we can we make it into a normative impulse but this
0: is not this is not a cry for anarchy however this is at the same time of course understanding the but merits but you know
2: uh, no it's it's literally a trope that takes you up and up and you look at Foucault, for example you look in the context of schools institutions
0: prisons you
2: look at how you make docile bodies off So, disciplining, disciplining, the whole idea of the act, which it's a trail, it's a thread. None of them spoke of it in the same way. Probably they didn't even reckon that they would be offering us this kind of a cue today. But when you actually pick up these texts, and, you know, especially when you invoked Wordsworth, I suddenly thought, yes, the spirit, and it marches on exactly what you're saying, what stays, what dies, what perishes, then what is actually again, raises itself almost phoenix like yeah somewhere it's it's a domain that's a constant and i think it is the voices that matter somewhere just the voices uh, that stay somewhere um, somewhere like tagore the whole idea of that the mind is free that may my mind be free you know that invocation by itself is not something that's ever going to go away we may want to critique a thinker we may. But I think what is very legendary in all these thinkers, one may critique Socrates and say that he almost gave the kind of impetus to what became Nazi Germany. But can I do away with the fact that he was also inscribing a certain element of what could be the value of not obeying all the time? Like I rather, I don't, you know, what he says that even if uh, uh, the uh, uh, even if he is being um, he he is being told that he is the wisest man in, in the entire of Athens, and yet he is defying the uh, oracle. He's saying, "No, I I defy you. I am not the wisest." By itself, it it is something. What is it that he's saying? Uh, that you know, uh, I I refuse to take that pedestal. What is it that he's you know? We haven't heard into it. We haven't looked into that assumption. But I think it's it's an ongoing conversation. It's never going to die because posterity tells us somewhere this uh, we are going to look at diffidence, we are looking at decadence, We are going to look at uh, the idea of um, uh, revolt, the idea of revolution, Rousseau, after all, people like Locke. Locke wrote this treatise on what, and he he was invoking, what is it that, uh, apart from building a social contract, which is Hobbesian, from the Hobbesian enterprise, that man is born free. Uh, uh, sorry, what he talks about the state of nature, that man brutish. is uh, brutish, yeah. uh, human life, brutish, short, nasty, uh, and solitary. And then, you know, you have these thinkers who are uh, rising open the same concern. What is it that we need? Hobbes who says Leviathan rises out of the sea. Where did he come from? Hmm. Who made, who gave him permission? How did he, was it the permission of the uh, people there? So I think by itself, questions are resting in their graves, literally, wanting to be unburied, to be asked again and again and again. Because somewhere there's always that moment, which is burgeoning, the burgeoning moment when we need to ask questions. And I think the moment of questioning by itself is a revolutionary moment. But
0: is there always something to question?
2: It is not questioning for the sake of questioning, like the Gurbani says, Sochya soch na hoi soch, jo sochye lakbar. It's not about thinking because thinking, you know, it doesn't happen. But when you see something, the whole idea of the normative, the whole idea of praxeology, which is part of philosophy, very the idea of intentionality. Mm. So you've got to, you respond to it. We may be armchair, but at one level, we are out there, absolutely out there.
0: But does this create uh, the idea of the enemy? Um, does it create another? Does it... Does it? Uh, um, because it's somewhat antagonistic, always.
2: You know, it, it, it depends on the kind of trope you want to probe, actually. If you really mm. look at it from the point of view of Aristotle, who really says that if you... you he, that, that juncture at which he points out, that if you have friends everywhere, you don't need the idea of justice. That you don't need to... Why would I need to live in a just world when I know that... I don't need to see you as the other. But the other willy-nilly lives. And so there is this antagonism, and this antagonism is completely, which is what Schmidt does with Hobbes. And it seems to be he's building an apology for Hobbes, but he's not. He's actually talking about that eternal possibility of the Hobbesian reality always tending to leap over. So how do you really respond to it? And, you know, we cannot... romanticism is one thing but romanticizing the idea of the moment that it so you and then you you can't you know you you need to have a sense of the response to the situation on the ground so we can have um history as it is as an archive which is a it, there are many truths in history and we constantly unravel them the interior history has there's so much to uh, you know to understand out of it. But one way or the other you're also thinking of um, um, this longest journey of understanding.
0: Where are you on this Aroop? I think we've opened a couple of flanks here. Um, what comes to mind, maybe specifically in the context of Assam, and when we think of defiance over long periods of time, um, and the other could be anyone it could be the imperialist bar, it could be you know the community it could just be nature you have thought of environmental factors and just nature in in general and specific terms how 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 does uh, this resonate with you yeah i think uh, uh this is
3: a peak archive of defiance, and as you rightly say it india's Uh, The anti-imperialist struggle, almost 100 years of struggle, say, if we begin from 1857 till 1947, and also in the previous decades, it is a big journey, or it's a big leap forward in terms of a defiance, in terms of challenging the authority and the might of the British Uh,
0: Empire. But does does it always, why does it? Why does it take time to get there? Why does it take time to even start? Um, Where does the... It needs a kind of critical mass, some amount of moral will, some amount of uh, collectivization, some amount of something collective.
3: That happens at a specific moment, right? But more importantly, it is the everyday defiance. Hmm. Every day it continues to happen and extensive body of scholarship have suggested based on a very critical study of india's uh, archives right that how this everyday resistance formed the biography of india's defiance against the british empire
0: you mean just disobedience of one kind or the other,
3: in different forms, inability of the British Empire to completely hegemonized uh, their or to take control of the mind and the culture of the Indian people, and this what brings to me to what Dr. Sion had said initially about in literature. Uh, And I would like to give a very critical evidence from the early 20th century, right? And this is what I see, that this is how we can read uh, as a historian of uh, defiance, extensive body of Indian literary archive, you know, in the first two decades of uh, 20th century, under the leadership of Ashutosh Mukherjee, Mm -hmm. the vice chancellor of Calcutta University, he initiated a big program that in Indian languages, uh, let us write a long history of India's literary history. And it happened. India's. India's literary history in their own languages, in Bengali, in Marathi, in Urdu, in Assamese. You know, that work which which were obviously the products and the collective will of the community and the individual scholarships. This was a great body of an a story of defiance against the story of Romanticism, a story of the Western modernism, right, which was being told to the Indian students in the 19th century, in the early 20th century. For example, that Assamese literary historian uh, Hamshandra Goswami, he. Compile a uh, very fundamental work. It's called hahit Hithor Saneke. Uh, specimen of Assamese literature. These are essentially a collections of Assamese literary works, right from the 14th century till the 19th century. But these are embodiment of a great journey of uh, India's own literary journey. But this is also an excellence. Uh, a resistance to the to the canonical journey, canonical projects that was formulated by the Western literary canon yeah. in the nineteenth century. But the story goes in different directions, the story of defiance. It is not only of everyday. There can be in multiple forms, multiple ways. Movements, Moment, revolutions, right. Yeah. Different times, different moments. I think Essentially, because of this defiance, the British Empire failed to take a strong foothold forever. There could not be a permanent story here, right? Which was not the case for many others, right? Uh, The British really failed to overcome this story of defiance. And it happens in different ways. For example, they failed to uh, win over the millions of Indian peasants, right? Uh, they would escape uh, the British Empire's control, the bureaucratic control, any other kind of control, right? In many ways, different ways. Were
0: the concerns uh, related to some notion of motherland and nationalism and those sorts of ideas, or were the concerns somewhat more economic and commercial and... Uh, uh, otherwise, for the peasants? I think it was well, what largely was the, economic. What was, it
3: hmm. was, I think, the sense of the commitment to the territory, commitment to Desh, commitment to motherland. These are the stories of the later period, much more matured phase of India's freedom movement.
0: You mean like early 20th century or thereabouts, uh, or late 19th?
3: Largely during the Gandhian phases hmm. of that. But the earlier period of time. This is essentially a security of their economic rights, dignity, and also their mechanism to negotiate with the state apparatus. Uh, To give you some example, you know, early in the 19th century, British East India Company, it had taken control of Assam, right? It was obviously a much later phenomenon.
0: Uh, You mean for tea plantations and things like uh,
3: that? Around that time, right but quite interestingly when the british east india company began to impose revenue cash revenue right it was not the system earlier most of the peasants right they adopted varieties of strategies to adopt the control and authority of the british empire for example many of them would move to the mountains right because once you move away from the territorial control of the british east india company um uh, you don't have to pay tax.
0: But right? that's because they're simply like, because of James C. Scott and other ideas like that, just more difficult to govern, more difficult to...
3: I think rather than govern, it is the, why not we give um, more importance to uh, to that method of defiance, I think. They could have still governed, right? They could have sent their military, they could have go for a military raid and expeditions. whether were,
0: were there like violent uprisings and things like that? Absolutely. Or it was you know, yeah. just migration away to...
3: You know, the nineteenth century is a is a is a story of India's millions of mutinies by the farmers, by the peasants, right, or mm. Adivasis, or many, all others, right. Mm. Uh, these were essentially an episodes or stories of the ability of the the Indians, right, In, who spoke different languages, who had different kind of political experiences. <laughs> Who had different kind of values also in terms of their freedom, in terms of their social life and organizations. But I think essentially they continued to defy the the British authority. And finally on the strength of these questions, right? Which is the the moral strength of the Indians, right, their unwillingness to, to bow down to the the British might, which was appropriated, which was understood by Gandhi in an extremely brilliant and in a way manner. way
0: that was tapped into. Uh,
3: I would say that Gandhi uh, respected that, right. uh, rather than tap. I think that is the best way of formulation. Right. Which helped him to understand the Indian mind in a beautiful and a brilliant Would you
0: say that these million mutinies, as we call them, in a way, let some kind of an emerging idea of India and Indianness, absolutely. But a, I think
3: yeah. from that defiance, emerged uh, the idea of India's, the idea of India, right, in a dramatic way. In fact, if we come to the mid twentieth century, right, you know, not everyone in the India's Constituent Assembly who spoke from the perspective of different regions of India they did not accept the larger. Propositions uh, pushed forward by Nehru's and his teams, right? Right. There are many ideas, many contrasting ideas of defiance, right? But all get, all all move towards the idea of a new idea, new idea of India, I think. I think that out of defiance, out of the things that happened in the mid-20th century, the modern India emerged uh, in a significant manner, right?
0: What is uh, this idea of Indianness? Now, I think there are these peasants revolting in different parts and so on. Yes. But this whole notion of Indianness from a literary perspective, and, you know, I mean, he came to the mid-20th century and somehow Neeratsi Choudhury comes to mind Right. Uh, around that time. So there's something very in, interesting and contra happening in some parts, of course. Um, yes. How would you think of that?
1: In literary history... Uh... Indianness really can be traced back uh, to the writings of Bunkim Chandra thai, right? And when we talk about Indianness emerging out of the writings of Bunkim Chandra thai, and later the late uh, some of the late nineteenth-century writings by Tagore, then we are thinking in terms of a very specific uh, formulation of Indianness it is the notion of Indianness that is coming out from this newly formed middle class mm-hmm. colonial middle class um, who are that section of India a uh, very tiny section of India who were exposed to Western education who uh, were primarily professionals like lawyers teachers journalists I
0: mean somehow and, a past out of the East India apparatus or even uh,
1: otherwise? East India apparatus, well, East India uh, sort of moves out of the picture after 1857. So, Right. Uh, but, uh, I mean, for someone like Bunkim Chandra Jottabad, just think of him. Uh, he is this great iconic nationalist, right? But at the same time, he is also... Uh, a civil servant who is part of the British administrative structure. He's a deputy collector and a deputy magistrate, right? And uh, Anandamot, from where we derive our national song, is also a novel which ends with a speech where uh, uh, one of the figures say that now uh, we should welcome the English rule because now we can learn from them. And uh, we, of course, need to finally resurrect uh, Sanatan dharma he doesn't mention Hinduism. Right. He says Sanatan Dharma, but um, part of it, uh, of course, uh, is internal aspect of it. But part of it should also be the external aspect, how to um, uh, move about in the world uh, and, and control the material world, right? And that uh, he is basically talking about science and technology here. And that the English knows well and that they can teach us and therefore we need was to it, was, was, was this
0: text then thought of as the product of a colonized mind? Uh,
1: I don't know how you will describe this text. I was recently teaching this text and I said that here is an example of a nationalist text which is not anti-colonial. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because anti-colonialism That's and nationalism are two different things and they only get merged um, somewhere in uh, the early 20th century. Uh, Swadeshi movement was one of the first major middle class led mass movement against the British. Yeah. However, there is a very long history of anti-colonial struggle. For instance, um, uh, Professor Hoikia mentioned these various peasant movements, for instance, tribal movements. Yeah, It's difficult to classify them as nationalist movement because I don't think there was a very deep-rooted nationalist ideology informing those movements, but they were they were anti-colonial, right? And here is Bon Kim's text which is nationalist but which is not anti-colonial. Yeah. So anti-colonialism and nationalism really comes together at the beginning of the 20th century in the figure of Tagore, who, interestingly enough, then leaves the movement partly around
0: the early 20th century or so Um,
1: 1907 right and who then becomes one of the staunchest critiques of nationalism uh, through his uh, novels like Gora through his uh, uh, essays uh, like nationalism in the west nationalism in India things like that and Ghore Baire Home in the World that novel so how nationalism this is a more
0: cosmopolitan the world is one kind of conception uh so, is, is this the Dissolution of the enemy Dissolution of the other What's happening uh, What kind of a world is this Because you know I think there is Obviously this whole Hobbesian Karl mm. Schmidt, That kind of a formulation Where right. Somehow if, if you are the self And if you have A community Whatever Then obviously mm. In this world Which is intermingling mm. You end up noticing The other and right. Creating the other And then all sorts Of dialectics
1: emerge Right um, as uh, Bharati mentions that the other is always there right so, um, Tagore, so what is the
0: other for Tagore or what was the other for Tagore around then
1: I think the question uh, I would frame the question differently Tagore was trying to answer the question how do we approach the other rather than who is the other right right, um, because for instance uh, in his essay Nationalism in the West he says that one of the tasks, one of the challenges that India has faced historically is uh, plurality, right? So everyone who is not you is the other, right? Uh, The question is not who is the other. The question is that the other is all around. How do you deal with them? And nationalism is definitely not the way forward, according to Tagore, because nationalism deals with the other through the process of conflict and fear, Yeah. right? You are fearful of the other, and therefore, you try to defeat the other. That, according to Tagore, is not the way to deal with the other because then you are living in this perpetual fear of the other. right? The other as the enemy. Other does not automatically translate into enemy. right? That takes some doing. And that um, happens within particular political and economic structures. Tagore was uh, of the opinion that nationalism is associated with certain kinds of commercial interests. He's talking about capitalism. He doesn't use the word capitalism. He says that nationalism as a political formation is the product of uh, an economic structure like capitalism.
0: You mean indigenous manufacturing, things of that sort? Like Because you spoke of the Swadeshi movement. Like, Swadeshi
1: movement, yeah. He was... Uh, I mean, again, it's very difficult to pin down Tagore on even uh, Swadeshi manufacturing because he would then have a difference with Gandhi Yeah, in terms of... I was about to ask that. Where's Gandhi in all this, Bharati?
2: Yeah, actually with Gandhi, uh, you know, one thing which comes to me is young India way back, uh, where he says uh, something happens in the ashram. And uh, one of the... uh, people comes up to him and says, uh, ask him that, do you think this is what you said? And Gandhi said that there's a difference between, you have to always remember that there's a difference between Gandhi, Gandhiism, and (laughs) Gandhiites. And I think that's a very important thing which has remained as a conjecture in my head, especially when I'm looking at the idea of nationalism. For people like Anthony, you know, we don't have a history of talking about nationalism other than at the moment when we think of ourselves in, in that moment of colonized, being being colonized. But when you look at the trajectory of where it actually emerges, Anthony D. Smith, who talks about the ethnic origins of nations, that right. there's, the, there's that context. Homi K. Baba, who says that we narrate nations, much more modern when we think, when we think in the context of even the idea of nationalism, interestingly, when you look at Gandhi, vis-a-vis Nehru, for example, and you look at the futuristic quote unquote way in which Nehru was uh, thinking of India, and if you look at a much more um, uh, perhaps not such a well-read text as the Hinswaraj, Swaraj, where Gandhi uh, speaks about the idea of machinery, where he invokes the idea of, uh, uh, you know, the other. But
0: but that is a self-other, I I was going there, that's a self-other formulation.
2: It is a self-other formulation, but it is also a subtler kind of uh, engagement of what could be the concerns that are disparate concerns for Gandhi and Nehru. Hmm. Which means that within within this moment, there were if not arbitrary there were diverse voices coming up diverse voices through one particular um let's put it uh, kind of uh, um set of people who thought they held a similar way of looking at life looking at their worldviews were similar and yet they were shaped by different diverse experiences and diverse ways of uh again um assimilating those experiences and I think this idea really is you know it really brings to me uh, brings to mind the idea of the pathology of politics where we actually pathologize the other. Yeah. the other is created. the other is created is also victimized and the but victimization that's the, that's is very, the very very subtle. Where does it come from? I think and it's both ways and this is this is you know if this is the concern that becomes a concern in history. It's a very brutish concern, and it's a concern that oh, concerns all of us. That's the definition of the political. Yeah, but then you know, <laughs> um, we have to also look at it from that point. That is that you know how do you really? Uh, um, in all of it, we do not. We definitely the attempt isn't to make docile bodies of the other. You're not disciplining. You're not disciplining the other. You you are raising a concern for diversity. You are, and and if that happens, then of course there should be dissent. There should be, and there's such a important moment for dissent at any moment, at any given uh, point of time. Um, I think it's a huge. Uh, um, it's it's something that. Uh, do you sometimes much more. cross over to the other side? Uh,
1: b- Yeah, you should. I mean, that's uh, where ethics comes in. Yes, you should. Uh, In fact, um, uh, when I was listening to Bharati, I was reminded of two things. One is Hinswaraj mentioning machines and Tagore also mentioning machine when he's talking about nationalism. And one of the things that he's saying is that nation organizes human community around mechanical purpose, right? Which means that the entire human community... Uh, becomes useful for a definite end product. Right? Had he
0: had he read Marx by then?
1: I don't know. I mean, it, <laughs> it's it's uh, maybe he did. Maybe he did. If you if you read Tagore, you are almost, or maybe it's me reading too much Marx into Tagore. Yeah. That can, that possibility <laughs> always exists. But uh, yeah. But um, as far as this um, self and other uh, question is concerned, I think. Um, we need to listen to the other, right? And uh, you asked a question to Professor Hoke as to why does dissent take so much time, right, to happen? Um, one reason might be that we are not trained to listen to the other. And the other cannot speak because there are not adequate infrastructural ratification of the voice of the other. In order to speak, in order to speak things that make sense, you need to move from, uh, Foucault would say that you need to move from speech to discourse, right? Meaningful set of statements, right? And And that
0: involves understanding the other side.
1: Right. And and what is considered to be meaningful statement depends on institutional ratification. And what an institution will ratify depends on the power structure. Yeah. Right. So one of the things uh, that is a problem here about engaging with the other and engaging with dissent or the voices of the others is that we can't... They are speaking, but we can't really listen to them because there is not enough infrastructural uh, mechanism available. And,
0: and somehow some kind of lack of intermediaries and mediation and that infrastructure. How How is the other treated in, in your context, in your world?
3: You know, the other... I feel that. What that is, is that f-
0: philosophical notion for you?
3: Other always existed, right? Other was always powerful. The only thing that uh, maybe historians and others, it refuses to recognize or read the minds of the others, right? For me, the others are not essentially the human essence, right? Others are also part of the non human worlds, right? And how you read them, how you tra- try to get the meaning out of that. Let me give some examples from my kind of readings, right? Uh, Let us see the world of the environment. You know, we always try to uh, to use the word of Bharati that discipline, right? We always try to discipline the nature. For example, try to discipline the rivers. We try to discipline the elephants, right? We want to keep them in a confined areas. We want to impose a new kind of modern economy, right? And nature continuously resist and defy this discipline. For example, you know, uh, you raised a lot of walls, concrete walls, uh, so that you created an enclosed refinery, an enclosed industrial complex. Probably that would have been the pathways for the elephants, right? the elephants normally and regularly would come and would break down those concrete walls right because they would like to defy uh, those v- vision of modern economy that was they, imp- they
0: don't divert the corridors and change the routes most
3: of the cases, as
0: the ecologists would tell us, and the
3: evidences by the anthropologists would tell us, right, they would not like to uh, d- redirect their route, right? Rather, <laughs> they would b- break it down. They would learn the tactics over a period of time. They've gotten better at breaking down walls. Right, I think <laughs> that happens. But more uh, importantly, they would also learn the tactics uh, probably available in this new environment. For example, they might be comfortable with new kind of crops, new kind of eatables, right? And this is how they have adopted. You know, we also need to learn and you see this... Uh, the word defiance from also the, the lenses of the defi- uh, those who are defying it, right? For them it is not a story of defiance, it is a story of survival.
0: Sometimes it's merely adaptation.
3: Adaptation, right. And the other classic example of this adaptation and defiance which go hand in hand is that of the, the rivers, for example. You create thousands of miles of embankments to ensure that the river behaves in a disciplined manner, right? Though the river had uh, different ways of behaving, interacting, enjoying its life along with the land, with the people, other uh, non-humans. But as we see from India's history, the embankments are big failures. These big failures are essentially the story of defiance of nature, right? Because nature would also like to have its own trajectory a life of its own, and in this project of defiance of the river against these embankments, there would be many, uh, many companions for them.
0: Would you say that in the case of at least the river example, um, and I, I don't think the elephant example is has any problems. Is, isn't that just plain physics?
3: Oh, I like think if, you, is...
0: if you make an embankment, and you know, then this water finds its own. But I think there is nothing
3: wrong in using the logic of physics in making a new history of defiance. I think historians should learn uh, from those theories of physics, uh, or in fact, the biophysics, physical geography, to geophysics, all combined together to give us uh, to see that how the reverse has its own life, right? I think that that story, this continuous story of friction between man and nature, human and non-humans, right, all combined together give us a better sense of the story of the political views of the others, right, which you asked me earlier. Yeah, The others has, a, has its own story to tell. And the archives are wonderful to read those things. It is, it is your willingness to read that history, right? Whether it, it, it is there. You know, classic examples uh, is that of the establishment of India's forest department in 1865. right? The forest department, when it was established, one of the primary duty of the forest department was to ensure that the common people Uh, will not have any access to the forest resources. For example, reserve forests were created. But we see, as in the works of many other previous historians, right, they have told us very clearly that how the local communities, they have adopted smart ways to negotiate with the India's Forest Department. Uh, For example, forest fire (laughs) are classic examples through which... Uh, the peasant communities, for example, they would defy the, might, the imperial forest department, right? And this will go on. There different ways this process will go on, right? Uh, and they all got finally integrated to the imperialist struggle over a period of time. And this is what you asked me initially. Yeah. Uh, why there was no continuous, why you require a sudden moment. I think this is where the anger
0: it's, like it's accumulated.
3: Yeah. Uh, it, it accumulated, right? I think it is also a story of uh, of different adaptation. For example, uh, you know, when nature becomes an obstacle, the environment becomes an obstacle. Human civilizations they have adopted different methods, different strategies to defy this nature's will. Uh, I would like to remember. Thousands of such evidences of, of, for example, crops or the breeding pattern. Right? You you basically invent new kind of plant. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so that uh, they can resist the power of the it nature. It looks
0: natural, but yeah, I mean they may be pest resistant, they have better yield or whatever. But uh, I think human beings to overcome, have, to, to yes. overcome. Right?
3: Yeah. Uh, I think, and this is again your the other questions. Right? Is it not a simple physics i think i think people also follow it right physics is nothing abstract right it is also about what is going on inside the nature this is in front of our reality Uh, the humans have learned from it non-humans have also learned from it uh, how to negotiate with many of those contingencies and at least indian histories southeast asian histories are full of strategies of adaptations of overcoming the power of the state, overcoming the power of the powerful, uh, or the powerfuls overcoming the ways to negotiate with the anger of the masses, right? Or anger of the poor, right?
0: Even the masses are powerful. Yeah, masses it's are powerful. It's not like the powerful have an right. easy time. <laughs>
3: right? You know, masses also can uh, smartly adopt religious strategies, right, to, to overcome the the, you know, the masses' ability to remember the religious text, to re- remember it, to recite it, on their own right, that itself is a story of defiance. And it goes on. It's a never-ending uh, story.
0: No, absolutely. What is the perspective of the other side? Perspective of the aggressor? Like in, in, in your case, what was British India thinking? You know, was most, it again a commercial act? Was there like what what, what was going on? What what do those archives say?
3: This is quite interesting. Uh, you know, most of the time the British officials, the young you know, East India Company officials, and later on the colonial officials, they were often astonished to see this nature of these oppositions, the nature of the defiance. Like, did they expect it? It was unexpected often, and they saw this defiance in two different contexts. They saw the defiance of the nature. They never thought that rivers behave erratically. <laughs> For them, the earthquakes were erratic, right? Yeah. Indisciplines. For them, That's this, a great point. the reverse uh, changes the courses. This is also an irresponsible, erratic behavior, indiscipline behavior. Because it basically erased their entire attempt to discipline the subjects, discipline the territory, right? For them, it comes really as an astonishing moment. Are, are
0: are some rivers, and it's a geography question, but are some rivers more unruly than others? You Hima- may be, you Himalayan may be rivers. next to one. Himalayan yeah, rivers Himalayan are more rivers. unruly. The uh, mountains are younger, young fold. the rivers are more unruly.
3: Himalaya is uh, young, yeah. dynamic. Yeah. And geologically extremely volatile, active, yeah. active, volatile. It increases every day yeah. in the millions of fractions, yeah. right? As geologists would tell us regularly, yeah. right? Because of this dynamic nature of the Himalaya, our, our land, our rivers, our terrains, everything remains active and dynamic. It is also a story of defiance, of against stability. And this is why... Most of these British officials who would follow textbook would like to follow the textbook patterns, how to govern a territory. It would not fit. For example, many of those officials who were posted in Assam in the nineteenth century, they thought Assam and its neighborhood would perfectly act like Bengal, right? Because they were posted in Bengal or United Provinces. But Assam and its neighborhood, for example, the hill districts of Assam, yeah. <laughs> uh, it would never act according to those textbook models yeah. and really, really found it difficult. But I think the, as you measure enough, as an estate, as an umpire, you get to know about those things, those intricacies, those complexities in a far better way. And the idea of nation, the idea of state become more powerful, more complex. Another,
0: another hilly place, Tibet. Uh, um, you know, obviously there's the politics and the philosophy of it and the fact that there's Buddhism there and so on. But do you think it has anything to do with the fact that that place is hilly?
2: Yeah, I think geography the has... The predicament, Im-
0: the facts, yeah, the geography.
2: The geography has a absolutely different... Uh, Way of um, affecting your behavior, of affecting the way you think, uh, the way you, uh, the way your worldviews get crafted. Outcomes. And the yeah. outcomes as well. I remember my
0: geopolitics.
2: Yes, of course, because uh, one is uh, the Ladakh of now, which is uh, much more um, reachable because of the new tunnel. But uh, in, in the time that I worked there. I remember going to Changthang and uh, I was with these two research assistants and the driver and we were lost in the middle of the night. We had to go to Chomuriri, to Korzok, Gompa and we were driving endlessly. It was like it was way out at night and the uh, the driver, he came out and he said, Do uh, minute and we were looking at these things which looked like um, villages far away And we were moving into that terrain and it had been like two hours. So we couldn't see why we weren't reaching the villages. And then suddenly we both were stunned. And he's a Ladakhi and he says, these are stars. (laughs) Actually, and, you know, we were just moving into and you think of it that these are revelatory moments. They change the way you think. They change the way. And of course, you know, things if you think of physics. Physics defies the fact you go up and people who uh, go up to the moon actually see the meaninglessness of everything. They see the smallness of what the greatest scientists have always told us to look at. Where,
0: but, how, where is the place in Tibetan literary texts, philosophical texts, the place, the placeness of Tibet? How how central or important is that in, in their archives and their texts?
2: I think it's not about textuality, it's about the uh, context they live in. It's Hmm. not got to do with uh, the text itself, that it is, uh, you know, written in a particular text, so to speak. But it is in the way they craft their cosmologies, and the way they think of their legal, um, uh, you know, uh, conducting legal um, uh, acts. Uh, It seems... uh, very, uh, it's it's not about, but it also kind of drives in a kind of a xenophobia. It also makes you more insular. Geographies of a certain sort also, you do, you become more inward looking. Yeah. Uh, you don't look out because you feel this is it. And that by itself may seem very peaceful, but it could also bear a lot of conflict, a lot of hierarchy, a lot of hegemony. Hmm. So you know you one can't see it from a singular way of looking at things.
0: are changes uh, slower
2: Changes in, are slower and like uh, in the
0: case of Tibet, for example, and it's dynamic with China or whatever, and we don't need to get into the politics of it. but if we had to if you had if you had to look at its biography to use the word that professor Hoike knows about um. Has that ebbed and flowed, gone up and down? The the resistance or the defiance has it sustained with the same level of intensity across generations, over the years.
2: The answer is very complex and multi-layered, actually, and I could think of somebody like uh, Donald K. Lopez, who writes this history about the Shangri-La of Tibet. Mm -hmm. So, and the analogy that he gives that when you enter a room where there are too many mirrors, Mm -hmm. the labyrinthine nature of that room is going to give you so many mirrored realities that you're actually, what is there is escaping you constantly. And I think the Tibetan reality actually falls into that kind of uh, structure at times. And if you even look at the um, you look at uh, uh, Tibetans, whether they are in exile, uh, inside is would be a different story, but the Tibetans in exile, the way uh, they have held up the idea of Tibet, um, the way dissent goes to, you know, is raised, but the way it could also get uh, very quickly, it could wither away because there's so much of the pressure of being exiles, of being refugees, uh, people without any identity, so to speak. So almost you have an identity, and yet that identity doesn't yield anything.
0: But that cosmology is very different from the other historical example of being a
2: Jew. Of course, because historically, even if you, you know, to look at the nature and to invoke similar questions on when nations get built, if we had ever been... uh, invaded, by if, if our colonizers had been, uh, it had been uh, Nazi Germany, uh, I don't think we would have had this kind of a discourse. We couldn't have talked about the post-colonial, almost as a kind of a revolt, you know. So I think it all, it is also, who is hegemon. the hegemon? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it is a very important concern. And who is the hegemon in uh, Tibet, which was seduced in different ways, which was raised up? by different <laughs> moments of politics. And then, I mean, so it's, it's a very interesting drama in real life, if you look at it. And the sufferers are uh, normal people out there and outside. Yeah. But just to also respond uh, to that question of rivers, I think this whole idea of, you know, to look at the, the idea of agency and how we can we seem to uh, not build a narrative around the idea of agency of say rivers for example but um, almost embedding it in a uh, trying to embed it within a scientific trope after all stones also carry our histories you know um, the alpine um, uh, hills which give us water because they they carry our histories so i think those narratives we seem to kind of forget the fact that and there's a kind of an arrogance in us to uh, would be if we were to just see it from that point of view and not grant so we you know we after all, we grant agency to ships. We give them identity legally. And yet, <laughs> we deny that identity to rivers. Satluj, when it goes into Nathwa Jhakti, is a wild river. Hmm. And my friend who wo- used to work there, I asked, I said, this river went into this turbine. And it came out limp on the other side. Was the water less? She said, no. I said, what happened to the river? Now, you know, it's really a question for me and you. Where's the physics? Do we understand physics? What happens?
0: If kinetic energy became electrical energy.
2: (laughs) Would that be the only answer? I mean, there's a much more vital something which we haven't possibly understood. I think think the word
0: vital is interesting. And
2: we've also forgotten the fact that we, you know, the first notion of this world is awe. And we lost that emotion completely. Somewhere along the way, we've lost it completely. Mm. And I think that's that's an invocation to that constant that should be a part of our, our worldviews, the idea of awe.
0: Yeah. And sometimes when you're overawed, um can we can we discuss this dynamic between uh and we'll link these things up, of course, but this dynamic between Indianness and Englishness in in the mm-hmm. and maybe think of Niratsi Choudhury and a few mm-hmm. others in in that context, because when you have this other, especially mm-hmm. in this case, the colonizer mm-hmm. the civilizer mm-hmm. thinking of the colonizer, the native, and so on, mm-hmm. um sometimes you agree with the articulation that you hear mm-hmm. um what happens thereafter?
1: So other can be...
0: Appropriation of another kind.
1: uh, Yes, and other can be thought of as a reference group, but also as a subaltern, right? So if we...
0: What do you mean by reference group? Just quality standard?
1: uh, Reference group, I mean, here I'm thinking about Robert Merton's theory of reference group. So within any society, if there is a dominant elite class with a lot of political and cultural and social agency, then uh, those sections of people without access to those kinds of mobility would usually tend to imitate them and look up to them as their reference group, right? So they take that group and how that group functions socially, culturally, politically as their reference point and try to shape themselves according to that other
0: and how does how deep does that go like you can change your manners you can change the way you dress but right you you, you can't change the way you look
1: that that was uh, you, you can't
0: uh, change your your kit and kin right. a lot of that stays
1: right it's it's interesting whether, but that will also depend on what are the factors that are coming in Uh, in your understanding of your self-identity, right? Mm -hmm. For someone like Neeraj Choudhury, um, who was trying to become a British in his own words, uh, his great stumbling block was his skin color, right? But the interesting uh, story here is that British self-definition did not always contain whiteness as a criteria, That has its own history. And that, in fact, was evoked, this very idea. I mean, for instance, if you go back um, to uh, the period when there uh, were large scale wars between Protestants and Catholics in Europe, uh, the British self identity would be defined much more around these ideas of Protestantism, Mm -hmm. right? Skin color would be relevant, right? Um, But then in a certain phase of uh, colonialism, skin color, whiteness started becoming part of their identity. Even, for instance, when the British came to India for a very long period of their existence here, they intermarried. Right. Right. The Anglo-Indians. The Anglo-Indians. And it was only after the opening up of the Suez Canal, really, which shortened the time that it took to travel from Britain to India. And it made the journey easier and more safe that a lot of British women also and the family members of the British uh, colonial officers posted in India started coming to India, right? And it's only then that intermarriages stopped and it's only then that this idea of whiteness and association of pure whiteness with uh, British identity. This
0: is uh, mid, mid-19th century. or so. uh, Second half of 19th century. 1853 or so. I forget uh, when Canal. Right, 1860s. 1860s uh-huh. yeah.
1: So uh, we are talking about the period after that, hmm. right? Hmm. So um, for instance, something like the skin color was not part of the British identity. So uh, emulating the British uh, and and not being white only became a problem for someone like Niro Choudhury, who was trying to do that during the early 20th century.
0: Was he accepted as British?
1: No. So uh, uh, that is. As English, rather. As English. So that is also an interesting thing. For instance, when we are talking about such cultural self fashioning, we are really talking about at least two aspects of this process. One is acculturation the other is assimilation right yeah. acculturation is that you can change your yourself you can fashion yourself by taking cues from the reference group but assimilation will only happen when the if other the takes the you in. reference group accepts you as a member of that group yeah right and in case of not only Niro choudhury but even uh, in case of the bengali poet michael mudusudondotto yeah uh, who was one of the earlier uh, instances of such English self-fashioning. Uh, In fact, was... he converted.
0: I don't know whether Neeraj Choudhury converted. Uh, uh, Michael then probably converted.
1: He converted to Christianity, but that was not... I I am not sure whether that was because he wanted to become a Christian that had something to do with his own family history and his own differences with his father. Sure. Um, okay. So uh, <laughs> okay, that has a I more did... personal note to it. Um, Neeraj Choudhury did not uh, convert, but... Um, uh, again, the p- of course process. not
0: today. You would say that he could be Hindu and British uh, because he can uh, become a he, prime minister. Ra-
1: but, he would uh, make that argument even then that um, because he was a Hindu, he was a British. It was not he was both Hindu and British. So he was a great believer in the Aryan migration theory, right? So uh, Max uh, Muller, Max Muller and that uh, entire theory of Aryans having a common homeland and migrating come into- from the same stock come from the same uh, racial stock, right? So the uh, Aryans slash Hindus were therefore the brethren of the colonizers, right? That was something that Max Müller believed in. And interestingly, Max Müller later uh, moved away from this theory, but a lot of Indians did not because it helped them to pitch themselves uh, at the same level. Right, yeah. (laughs) Why would you want to? But then... Neera Choudhury's famous or infamous autobiography of an unknown Indian begins with this dedication, uh, which says that the British taught us everything that is nice, that is living, that is growing within us, that is good. But the problem is that we kept shouting that we are also then citizens of Britain. But they would grant us subjecthood. They would not grant us citizenship. They would not grant us as equals, right? So uh, Nero, for someone like Nero Choudhury, the appropriation of Englishness was also a matter of throwing this defiance, throwing this challenge to the British, that if you are also liberal, and if you think that uh, so, this is
0: like accusation of hypocrisy,
1: right? Exactly, and 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 uh, sort of showing uh, this hypocrisy onto the face. I mean, sort of pointing the finger at the colonizer, uh, pointing out the hypocrisy, right? Because then there is this mismatch between the great liberal discourse of colonialism and the racist uh, underlining of that, right? And here was Neeru Choudhury uh, unraveling that that uh, connection or disconnect.
0: So, are Jyoti, are there equivalents of uh, Michael Madhusudan Niraj Chowdhury in Assam? What's happening, or are there only these uh, revolting peasants?
3: No, I think there are individuals, there are important thinkers who played different role from different parts of the country, like that of Bengal, uh, in different ways, different nature. From Assam's side, the name which will come quickly to my mind is that of Anand Ramtig fukan who lived uh, roughly for 30 years, born in 1829 and died in 1859, who started briefly in Calcutta. More importantly, uh, you know, he was a firm believer in the company administrations, right? He was a friend of several of the key company officials in Assam. Uh, but I think he was one of the firmest critics of one of the major uh, uh, policy initiative of the British East India Company, that was the Permanent Settlement. He was also official of the zamindari system, that is, the, that of one of the zamindars in Assam. But he wrote a series of uh, letters and finally a long memorandum to the British government in 1853, writing against the Zamindari system. That long memorandum uh, carried forward some of the, I think, strongest criticism of the British Empire and its fallout in India. He would obviously uh, be listening to some of the contemporaries in Bengal, right? But very rarely in India in the 19th century I would see uh, that a public intellectual would take such a strong stat. Uh, statement. But was he
0: was he a literary figure? He was. Was he doing? Uh,
3: he was a company. He was a gov- official of the company government. He was a literary writer. He would write the history of Assamese literature. He would write the history of British law in India. Uh, so he was a multifaceted figure. Though he died very young at the third year, and he is considered to be the the pioneer of modern Assamese modernism, right? Uh, and later on in 1860s, 1860s, uh, Henry Hopkinson, who was the commissioner of Assam at that time, he would actually make a wonderful comparison. And this makes uh, that's why I'm bringing him into the picture. He said he is equivalent of uh, Bengal's Raja Ram Mohan Roy, but right. he's more than that because he didn't get the experience and that ambience of what Raja Ram Mohan would be getting in Bengal, right? But his criticism of this permanent settlement remain a major important uh, statement and criticism, I would say, defiance of the British East India company's position in India. Uh, Permanent settlement would be seen as one of the greatest contributions uh, that the company had contributed to India, right? And it was seen as a benchmark, as, 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 as change of it will change everything together, right? right? But taking a policy stand, I think this constituted itself uh, uh, a great defiance, a great resistance to that empire cannot be correct all the time. I, I would say that he's not alone. There are many such figures. These figures would come from the hill districts of Assam. They would come from the other parts, right? Uh, The other name who comes to my mind at this point is a young...
0: But are there others who, who are strong sympathizers, or people who understand the English perspective in its entirety? I mean, even in this example, that is a criticism
3: of it, So He was a great sympathizer of the British rule. He would write series of wars. You mean the technocracy? Technocracy is the... British modernity, right. but not wholeheartedly, right? He would write that he would imagine himself that I would see, I would like to see the Assam, so all the jungles or the forest being converted into gardens, right? All the boats of Assam should be messing propel boats, right? Like right. England, right? He, in fact, wrote a book called *England or Biberon*: Description of England, right? But despite that, I think this is where lies this interesting story of India's defiance, right? It was not a completely hegemonic control of the British Empire over India, right? It was an it was a half conquest or are partial there, conquest. are
0: there equivalents? Uh, in among Tibetan intellectuals, who understand the other side.
2: Yes, I think the word <laughs>
0: sympathizer is somehow seems like uh, it has a negative connotation, but
2: um, actually, for a long time, and uh, this is, I'm um, references a little uh, dated and perhaps uh, in that sense. But at one point of time, uh, there were a lot of. Uh, American scholars uh, in certain universities who were writing a history of Tibet which was crafted in a very, very different way. It um, uh, uh, There were portrayals which were obviously very truthful, must have stuck to reality. But on the other side, there were people like Donald Lopez who wrote the history of Tibet, but who were... Uh, seen as cynical to this idea of writing history in a particular way, and this tore the, the. There was a kind of a schism. So, if you, as a scholar, wanted to see both sides of the trope, uh, it it was a little difficult, as it is difficult to see uh, Tibet from. For a long time, has been difficult to see Tibet uh, with a little, you know, and now a little easier, I guess, given the world politics um, and historians have really been in that sense divided there's a kind of a complete but it it, it became like almost bandwagoning and uh, you had to stick to a story and you would possibly then belong to a group and but you as scholars I think if you were not historically inclined or at least you didn't want to reflect on that uh, publicly then you were allowed to kind of think through Buddhism and, uh, and then, you know, bring in whatever narratives you thought spoke truthfully. So, for instance, when you actually look at the um, recent writings by Tibetan uh, uh, youngsters, the youth, um, reflecting on their tragic histories as human beings living in another country as not just exiles just to think of the existential trap in which they are yeah neither here nor there nor anywhere so that it, it should kind of go down to the recesses of our beings yeah, to make us think to make us reflect on other human beings you know and this is reflective of histories from a lot of and the Himalayan histories for example So, and these are, and I think the, uh, and these are normative questions. I mean, the
0: homeland, what's idea of the homeland?
2: The homeland has become a very, again, a very skewed position now. Hmm. What is the homeland? Is it the homeland where you have, you know, which looks geographically the same, but which uh, may not reflect any of the kind of energy that you. Earlier had you can think of a city, uh, and the idea of the city is such an important construct, right? From the time of Plato, the city is a metaphor for our own polis. the investment, the polis. Yeah. The, the how how has it shifted? Yeah. It has totally shifted. So what would take place? What would happen? And I think the best way to think is to sit in somebody's shoes, fit into some, and it's very difficult to find. You know, you'd never fit in there.
0: <laughs> yeah. What's the future, Sharon? Where on this whole notion of defiance, strategies, new technologies?
1: I think. um, Yeah, I think there has always been defiance and there will be defiance. Um, But uh, if the future is to be bright, uh, we need to learn to listen to the other who is dissenting and who is defying. We need to learn to make that ethical journey.
0: Is dissent always legitimate?
1: Who decides that, right? And when does the moment of deciding whether dissent is legitimate or not come? After first understanding the other, right? So you cannot pre-decide whether a dissent is legitimate or illegitimate and then approach the defiant body, then the only option is to crush that. But that is not the ethical process that you will first need to, I mean, it's a cliched phrase, but you first need to step into the shoes of the other and try and figure out what the position is from which that person is dissenting in order to understand before even deciding whether it's legitimate or illegitimate.
0: And I know you said this like a minute ago, but what makes you say that there will always be defiance? Like, like
1: why so? Because as I uh, said at the very beginning, that there'll always be formulaic structures which will always come short of giving every individual or every subject its own kind of self-expression, right? And uh, uh, we also have limited resources and unlimited desires which we are trying to match, right? So, which means that there'll always be this self and other um, confrontation, right? Engagement. Um, And there'll always be someone raising certain questions to us and asking us to listen to them, right? Whether we choose to do it whether we choose to crush that defiance and make everything homogeneous, make everything like us and uh, convenient for us, or whether we choose to listen to the other and then engage with the other. That is up to us. And I think the future of defiance and how defiance is understood and dealt with will depend largely on that.
0: Yeah, because one is this grand political staging of, you know, uh, these revolutions and revolts and some of these sorts of things that we've been discussing, literary movements, But that these minor everyday things which you spoke of. What's the future, Bharati? Do you do you agree with the premise that there'll always be defiance? And like, what's, what's the sub-premise of that? Like, what's the axiom that leads to that? If you agree with it.
2: I'd like to begin uh, or at least to uh, think through the position that the ancients had done that we're always looking for the philosopher king and by which I I think there's this Um, and
0: the balance between order and freedom.
2: Absolutely. And also to actually look at what Kierkegaard possibly talks about that, you know, we collect such a baggage with us. Yeah. We seem to be <laughs> Uh, We seem to have wizened into some sort of... uh, Either-or. ...creatures of uh, our imaginations. But somewhere, we need to also put that baggage down and to think. And I think that ability to think is there, but we need to think. Isn't that
0: ahistorical?
2: It is ahistorical, but it is also, in a sense, and I don't mean you just drop history. And by that, I don't mean you need to drop your baggage, but maybe there's a dialectics to that baggage and you need to kind of build some sort of, um, you need to build some way of understanding it. uh, And it's very, it's too, uh, I think there's a lot more to be said there. But there there are
0: these everyday, interpersonal, minor, minute, maybe, uh, you use the word disobedience, refusal, Disobedience, saying no—the very word "no." Um,
1: Why not disagreement?
0: Disagreement, yeah. Which 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 doesn't shut the door in the face. Um, and yeah, I mean there are quarrels, like all sorts of things where, whenever there are interactions, there would be. Where are you on
2: this? No, if may I yes. may add, like yes. yeah, it's the idea of disagreement, which always has a butt to it. But you always want to hear the other. I think that's a very important kind of an addition there.
1: Otherwise, we lose plurality, don't we?
3: Yeah. I think this is the strength of modern democracy. Modern democracy is a sum to tell of the flow of dialogue between the logic, reasons, and defiance. And without defiance, modern democracy will not survive, will not measure, and it will not have the dynamism, right? Defiance also will help the democracy to learn the art of negotiations, the art of reason, art of logic and argument, right? And this is how the communities, individuals, the institutions, they will all flourish. they will all uh, make a vibrant contributions to the human civilizations, non-humans, all combined together, right? And it is probably also the, the hours of the modern polity to have someone to defy continuously, right. uh, because without...
0: <laughs> you think that's a need, almost? It's a I necessity? That, it's I set up in an adversarial way? The not very, all
3: the time, not all the time, but you need...
0: Not if, not if you have a permanent, eternal philosopher king. But on, you need some
3: with, kind of someone to, to discipline, right, all the time, right? You need rivers to be disciplined. You need non-humans, m- mammals to be, uh, the big carnivores to be uh, disciplined all the time, right? Or other kind of practices, right? Non-canonical agricultural practices to be disciplined, right? So that process makes the human life exciting. The non-humans also exciting, right? Yeah. They also learn from the humans, right? Humans also learn from them. I think it is an, this is this world of friction. This is this world of defiance and negotiations, right? Defiance is a big word, right? Sometimes it produced great civilizational changes. And this is what we have learned from 19th century, 18th century, and many of great religious reformations that have taken place, right? or new literary genres out of this story of defiance. But I think this is the beauty of modern democracy. This is where the the, the strength of democracy lies. And I think um, the logic discussions, probably 100 years later in the same set of uh, sound room, right? Someone will be discussing another phase of Uh, defiance uh, with a new group of people with the aid of new kind of technologies or maybe some thousand years later right
0: yeah interesting i think that's a good note to end this on thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again thank you for coming thank you so much
2: thank you